Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for November 16th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Today, we are lucky to bring you a panel of three excellent guests here to discuss the biggest California appellate law news in a good while, Governor Jerry Brown's final Supreme Court selection, which issued Wednesday after more than a year wait. Joshua Groban, Brown's longtime senior aide, got the much-speculated overnod and will now meet the state's three-member commission on judicial appointments, which seems all but assured to confirm the governor's pick. Groban was on Brown's campaign staff when Brown sought a second go-round in the state's highest office and moved full-time into government work from a post at Munger, Tolls, and Olson in Los Angeles to advise the governor on, among other things, the appointment of hundreds of judges who have reshaped and diversified the state bench these past eight years. Groban is the fourth high court selection of Brown's recent governorship, and like the previous three, Justices Goodwin Liu, Leandro Kruger, and Mariano Florentino Cuellar, Groban brings no prior professional judicial experience to the high court bench. Groban would replace retired Justice Catherine Werdegar, who left the bench last August. Our panel will include two members of the state appellate judiciary and the former state bar president. We joined in just a moment by Justice Therese Stewart of the First Appellate Division, presiding justice of the Second Division's Second District's Sixth Division, Arthur Gilbert, and Howard Miller, mediator and arbitrator with JAMS, longtime High Court watcher and formerly the State Bar President. First, though, let me remind you, as always, that listeners are encouraged to claim one hour of California CLE credit for having tuned into our program. To do so, just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And now, it's time for our opening briefs. At the U.S. Supreme Court, four cases were granted cert this week, two in high-profile cases involving racial gerrymandering and the 2020 census. In the former, SCOTUS will consider whether a set of Virginia House delegate districts were impermissibly designed with race primarily in mind. The district court held as much after the high court last year remanded this case with instructions as to proper legal standard. The Virginia House of Delegates is the party now challenging that lower court's holding, which mixes in an interesting standing question here since the state's attorney general declined to bring an appeal. No argument date has yet been set. The other notable appeal presents an evidentiary matter in a suit over the government's decision to add a question about citizenship onto the 2020 census. Namely, the court must decide whether plaintiffs challenging that addition are entitled to discovery outside the available documentary administrative record pertaining to the government's decision to add the question. Plaintiffs sought to depose the parties involved, including Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, as to their motivations, believing them to be other than the proffered justification relating to voting rights enforcement. Plaintiffs in the case worry a citizenship question on the census will tend to skew results by deterring undocumented or illegal immigrants from responding. An expedited briefing schedule was ordered here, and arguments are set for February. In a cert denial that prompted three separate writings, several Florida death row petitioners had challenged the state's holding that their capital sentences could go ahead, despite a SCOTUS ruling that the process by which those sentences were rendered was unconstitutional. That process included an advisory death sentence given by a jury, and then a final confirmation ruling as to execution by a judge. The Supreme Court in 2015 said this process violated a defendant's Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury, but as to these petitioners, Florida found any error harmless, because in these matters, execution recommendations were unanimous, and so, the reasoning goes, the juries would have rendered similar decisions had the final call been theirs. Justice Breyer wrote, respecting the denial of cert to voice concern that jurors might have acted differently had they known their death sentence was final rather than advisory. Justice Sotomayor echoed this concern in a dissent to the denial. Breyer also repeated his usual worry that the delay typically preceding executions, often several decades long, raises Eighth Amendment concerns. Justice Thomas, 
in his separate note, responded that such delays are not a reason to reconsider the death penalty, but rather to carry it out more quickly. Aside from learning the likely next California Supreme Court justice, we also learned two of the high court's now docketed matters as it granted review Thursday in Monster Energy Company v. Schechter, which raises a contractual question relating to confidentiality and an evidentiary question relating to anti-slap motions. The court also will hear a water law dispute asking whether CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, requires environmental impact review for the placement of water wells. That case is protecting our water and environmental resources versus Stanislaus County. In the Ninth Circuit, contrasting en banc orders came down this week. Full court review was denied in a matter involving unrepresented minors in immigration courts. A panel had previously denied review on jurisdictional grounds to a class of undocumented minors seeking to establish a constitutional and statutory right to be represented at removal proceedings. That decision will now stand. Judges Berzon, Wardlaw, Fletcher, Paez, and Murguia dissented from the en banc denial. In a qualified immunity matter, though, the circuit granted on Bank Review to a plaintiff who sued the city of Riverside on excessive force grounds after being paralyzed when shot during a traffic stop. The lower court there had sua sponte raised the issue of qualified immunity and then granted it at summary judgment to the defendants. A panel had affirmed that ruling, but the en banc Ninth Circuit will now reconsider. And just a few Court of Appeals notes in what it noted was a rare family law case, the third appellate district in a ruling by Justice Elena Duarte affirmed that the three feuding individuals there were all entitled to be legally considered parents of one child and would share custody of the same. The third district also, in an employment dispute held against plaintiff employees of Pac Bell who sued over their not being compensated for certain travel between their homes and job sites when they used company vehicles. That opinion also came from Justice Duarte. And in a matter I hope none of our listeners need to avail themselves of any time soon, the 6th Appellate District, in a case published Wednesday, held against a legal malpractice plaintiff on statute of limitations grounds. After a long wait, the California Supreme Court will very likely soon be joined by Josh Groban, who was nominated Wednesday by Governor Brown. The 45-year-old Los Angeles native served as the governor's senior advisor and will be Brown's fourth and final high court selection from his second stint in the statehouse. Here now to discuss the nomination, I'm truly honored to be joined by two Governor Brown appointees and the former president of the California State Bar. First, let me introduce Justice Therese Stewart, Associate Justice in Division Two of the First Appellate District. Prior to that, she served as Chief Deputy City Attorney in San Francisco, and when she took her spot on the bench in 2014, became the first openly gay woman to serve on the state's appellate judiciary. Justice Stewart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And from JAMS, a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators and former as I said, California State Bar President Howard Miller. Mr. Miller, welcome in. Thank you so much, Brian. Very happy to be here. And the presiding justice of Division Six, the Second District Court of Appeal, Arthur Gilbert. Justice Gilbert, welcome on. Yes, thank you. Glad to be joining my distinguished colleagues. Thanks. We'll jump right in. So big news in California legal world here on Wednesday with Governor Brown appointing his last nominee to the California Supreme Court. That uh, selection is Joshua Groban, his longtime senior advisor. I'd like to maybe initially start off with some of your your first reactions to this pick that you had when you first heard it. Justice Gilbert, let me start with you. What were your first thoughts hearing the selection was Josh Groban? Well, um, except for one thing, I wouldn't be surprised because Jerry Brown is full of surprises. You never know uh, what he's going to do. I've known him for years. I knew how he did things in his first uh, term of office. And I think he likes to reflect for a while and just uh, and then it suddenly hits him. 
I remember when Goodwin Liu was uh, was appointed. You know, he seemed to come out of nowhere, uh, and he was thinking about it, and he was, you know, mulling it over, and then he had, you know, Eureka, this is who I who I want to appoint. Now, the only reason I was surprised about Josh Groban's appointment, normally I wouldn't have been this surprised, but he had already been vetted to become the the presiding justice of Division Five. So, uh, and I know him, and we talked. I'm congratulating him, and we're talking about the the court, and you know how he's going to get along with his colleagues, and and all. And so I, you know, and there was speculation prior to that. You know, I bet it's Josh Groban, and you know who knew. And then I said, see, I said no, I don't think so, and I was proven right for a moment. And then all of a sudden, I find out that um, he's now appointed to the Supreme Court. So that's why I was surprised. Uh, Justice Stewart, what were your thoughts? Well, I I kind of uh, similarly to Art to Justice Gilbert, I I was talking to a friend a while back who, like me, had been in government um, for a portion of his career, and he said, you know, it might be taking so long. In part, you know, it was possible that that the governor was going to appoint somebody from within, and that he needed that person's services still. And to me, then it seemed logical that Josh would be the one. And but when he was vetted, when he was put through the the Jenny, which is the commission that um, evaluates potential judges for the second district court of appeal, arts court, I wondered if that was sort of a, a flying under the radar. So I, I I congratulated Josh, but I it occurred to me that it might be the governor's way of, you know, putting him through the process early before he was ready to announce the actual appointment. So I wasn't shocked, um, although I was surprised in exactly the way that Justice Gilbert mentioned, which is, you know, you never quite know what Jerry Brown's going to do, and this was no exception. (laughs) Mr. Miller, your, your thoughts? Well, I think, you know, I think it's a great compliment to Josh Groban to how important he was to the governor and how important he was to the overall appointments process, the very successful appointments process. I mean, the governor left the seat vacant for 18 months because uh, he obviously considered it very difficult to find a replacement who would keep on doing the kind of job that had been done. So I think it's just a great compliment to Josh Groban, and I think it's a real uh, indication of how important he's been in, in all the appointments that have been made and the very successful diversity on the bench. That would be one of the things I would uh, be curious to ask about. First, you've all mentioned the sort of lengthy time period between Justice Wardegar's departure over a year ago, and that departure came several months after she had announced she was leaving. And in this selection, uh, certainly maybe a longer span than is typical. Some folks had, had speculated, perhaps from more cynical quarters, that that weight was due to the fact that perhaps the governor would make a, a somewhat controversial selection, perhaps selecting even maybe the, the, the most cynical thought was he could have he could appoint himself or he could try to, to get a spot for himself on, onto the court. It turns out, Justice Stewart, you think perhaps the, the, the reason for that delay is he just wanted to keep the services of his senior advisor who had been guiding him on his judicial selections for as long as he could. Is that the most likely? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, my guess would be that the governor didn't make up his mind at the outset when Justice Werdegar retired and, and thought about various options. 
And when along the way, along the path, he made the decision, um, I mean, I'm sure he had Josh in the back of his mind early on, but he may well not have decided until somewhere in, in the middle of that hiatus. And then, but, but, but I do think some part of the waiting, I mean, I agree with um, Howard that the Josh has been critical to the diversification of the bench that the governor has been so committed to. And he's really the one who's done the roll up your sleeves work and going out and finding candidates and talking to, um, to judges about people they know and hearing from judges about people they know and going out and making, giving talks about how to get on the bench and so forth. And he's been relentless in his effort to put women and ethnic minorities and LGBT people on California's courts. And I don't think the governor could have replaced him um, at least late in the game with anyone who could have, you know, carried that out. And there were still quite a few vacancies to fill in this past year. And so it's not as though we're talking about a handful. We're talking about a lot of openings that the governor was committed to filling. Justice Gilbert, what what, uh, what were your thoughts as the, the vacancy here persisted over the course of months and, and over a year? Well, I think he was deliberating over the choice. I, I just, I, I sort of feel that I know, I don't, I know the governor well enough. He really wants to make the right choice. And I think that the idea of him appointing himself was so absurd, I, and, or his wife. I, I, was, I mean, that's just not, it's not the Jerry Brown that I know. I just don't think he'd, he'd ever do anything like that. I had the pleasure of working with Josh Groban for eight years on vetting candidates. And the, and the marching orders he got from Jerry Brown was to have diversity. But even above diversity was competence. And what we found out, and not to a surprise of my own or anyone's, was that we found extremely talented people of diverse backgrounds. So competence wasn't, you know, competence comes first, but we were able to uh, meet that diversity goal because there are some first-rate jurists uh, from all walks of life and backgrounds that reflect the diversity of the court now that were extremely well-qualified. And that was, that was Josh Groban's mission, and uh, everyone that worked uh, with him in looking and finding and vetting candidates uh, were committed to that goal. So, uh, you know, there was a long vacancy, and since Josh was so capable at doing his work, I think that's a very good point that, you know, why don't we just carry this out to the very end, because there are still appointments to be made. And so I think that's what he did. And, you know, some people complained about, well, look at this long hiatus. You know, how does the Supreme Court operate? It operated fine. A lot of us sat by assignment on the Supreme Court. I sat several times during this period. And, you know, it it seemed to work fine. And I don't think it interrupted their workflow. We all knew each other. We all worked well, and we got the cases out. Yeah, that would be my last question about the the length of the hiatus. Mr. Miller, you, you've long been an observer of the, the California Supreme Court. Did you have a sense that the, the high court was impacted to any extent by the, the lengthy process here in terms of either just their volume of work or the types of cases that the court would, would take on, maybe, for example, not very controversial ones? No, I didn't see any, any impact. I mean, people are speculating that there may be some cases uh, they're holding for the, for the fourth vote. But 
I really doubt that because what's remarkable about the court most recently is how cohesive it's been and how many of their opinions have been unanimous. And I didn't see, and I think the, the numerous people have looked at the numbers in terms of delay. I think the court handled it extremely well. And I also think what's been said about Josh Groban and appointments, I mean, this is really historic. Is You know, this is the governor's second term. He probably has appointed more judges than any person in the history of the world between his first and his second term. And I think what's happened in the last eight years is really going to be going to be viewed as historic in terms of judicial appointments, the success of diversity, the quality, and it's a kind of model, I think, as people look to how should judges be appointed, that what the governor and Josh Groban achieved in these years is really going to be looked back on as a kind of model, process, and outcome in terms of judicial appointments. We have have talked about this a bit already then in describing the work of Mr. Groban, but Justice Stewart, tell me a bit more about who Joshua Groban is. We know he's worked closely alongside the governor for the past eight years. Also, uh, he's been a lecturer at UCLA, and I had, parenthetically, Gold Bruins. Prior to that, he was in private practice here in L.A. and, I believe, New York. I went to law school here in California. Um, but what what should we know about him in terms of either his, his background or his, his, his attributes that he's going to bring to this role, Justice uh, Stewart? I apologize for interrupting, but he actually didn't go to law school. He went to college in California at Stanford. His yeah. distinction is that he didn't go to Yale. He, he went to Harvard. Yeah. He went to Harvard. <laughs> right, exactly. That's right. Thank you. Um, the first uh, appointment to this high court by the governor that wasn't a Yale. Um, you know, Josh is has been both a private practice litigator and an advice lawyer to the governor, and he's highly regarded in both spheres, and we've been emphasizing his how critical he's been to the um, process of um, appointing judges, but he also has advised the governor on legal issues like education and policy issues and, and, and criminal justice and other constitutional issues and so forth. And so I think the governor this is not an easy governor to please, and I have a lot of faith that Josh's talent and his sort of judgment are are characteristics that the governor knows well and has a lot of faith in. My own dealings with Josh, which have also been focused on his efforts to, you know, find diverse candidates for the, the bench and, and high-quality diverse candidates – He's very approachable and easy to talk to, and it's um, funny, one of your colleagues asked me yesterday in a phone call whether it was like Jerry Brown appointing himself, and I said, well, not really, you know, as a younger person, and I said, not really, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you can talk to Josh, and... and um, you know, and the governor is is a very interesting person, but he's not necessarily easy to talk to. And Josh is just very down to earth and very practical, in addition to being thoughtful and super smart. Um, I also think it's notable that he's Jewish, and I think that that's an important facet of who he is that he brings to the court. Um, I don't believe there are any other judges currently, justices on the court, who are Jewish. So. And kind of right now, that's particularly meaningful in light of the sort of rise of anti-Semitism in this country. So I'm, I'm, he brings a, a diversity of his own in that respect. And but I just think he's going to be, I mean, the, the 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 quality of him sort of being down to earth and able to 
to talk with people of all kinds is really an asset on a court where you need at minimum three other votes on the things you're working on and ideally six, right? And so the ability to um, connect with other people, to listen to people, which he's a great listener, and to, you know, discuss things with in a way that, that people feel, you know, respected, that's going to be a strong asset for, it would be for whoever would serve on the court, but Josh is particularly good at those qualities. He's not likely to be off on his own, doing his own thing, and not connecting with his colleagues. I, I think I, I can echo every, everything uh, Dr. Stewart said. Uh, I've worked with him you know, for eight years, and I found his insight into case law is really quite remarkable because he's advising on appointments not just to the superior court but to the you know obviously the court of appeal and even supreme court as well and he's read all he reads all the cases he reads all the cases of of the uh, pro tems uh, superior court pro tems who are sitting on the court of appeal in order to evaluate them and his insight into the cases is remarkable i mean it's really quite good so i've talked to him at length about case law and he has a terrific insight into the law, and he he did some appellate work. I mean, and he did uh, trial work, so he knows what it's like to be in the trenches. And so his, and then he also teaches, of course, at UCLA in appellate practice. And I've taught. Uh, I've he's asked me to come and lecture uh, every year. I do a, a few hours on his course once a year, and it's a very sophisticated course, and it really helps the students. And as far as collegiality is concerned, that's, uh, that's a given. He's the most approachable, down-to-earth, regular kind of human being you could meet. And you know, one thing I've noticed about the Supreme Court, and some of the people who are sitting on the Supreme Court now have mentioned this to me. And I won't mention names, but they're some of the more con- so-called conservative members have told me, because I've been around so long, I know a lot of people, and I've sat by assignment. It is probably the most collegial court now than it's ever been. Uh, when I've sat at conference, there may be differences, and we talk about things, but, boy, they just get along. They're nice to each other. They're polite. And I've been told by some of the more conservative justices that some of the new justices have opened up the court so that there is more discussion. And, and I found that, you know, open discussion rather than just writing memos back and forth. And Josh Groban is going to fit in beautifully, beautifully there. So I think he's got a really good background to come into that court and to add a great deal to it. And, of course, his diversity, uh, just to ask quickly on that, you know, he follows in the tradition of Moss, Tobriner, Kaus, uh, Joe Groden was on that court. They were all really extraordinary uh, jurists, and, uh, and I think he's going to follow in, in that tradition. Yeah. And just uh, echoing one, one item that Justice Gilbert mentioned, you know, the, he was in private practice with large firms, one in New York and one in Los Angeles, for 10 years uh, doing trial work, uh, but also in private practice in civil cases. And I think, um, I think that, pro- that may be more experience in private practice uh, than any other current member of the court has. And I think that experience in terms of, as Justice Gilbert said, working in the trenches and dealing with the practicality of litigation at the trial as well as appellate level is going to, uh, going to be very helpful 
uh, in the court's deliberations. This is the, the Governor Brown's fourth selection in his second go-round here as California governor, fourth selection to the, the California Supreme Court, and the fourth time that the appointee will come from a background where they have not been a judge. Two of the previous appointees were professors, and one, Leonta Kruger, came from the Solicitor General's office. What, uh, Mr. Miller, do you think that says about Governor Brown's approach and philosophy to judicial appointments? And uh, what what do you think about, I guess, just the, the idea of folks, you know, certainly people come from all different backgrounds to the bench, but some people do voice concerns that someone on the highest court should have some experience being on, on a bench of some kind. What are your thoughts on that? No, I think the Supreme Court, which is not a court of error, I mean, the district courts of appeal are courts of error in terms of the trial court. Supreme Court is very much more a policy court. Uh, That's the standards for the cases to which it it grants review. And I don't think that having been a judge or having been other kinds of experience is essential. I mean, some of the greatest judges and justices in history, including people who come from and in California, uh, Justice Traynor, who I clerked for, had not been a judge. Chief Justice Warren, of course, is, is the absolute case of, of the appointment of something at the highest level. And I think there are different standards, and I think the governor appreciates that. For a Supreme Court, which deals with these policy issues in terms of interpreting the law, and that he makes choices based on people he thinks who will be able to analyze and understand and make just decisions on those issues. So I, I think the backgrounds are fine, even though people have not previously been a judge. You know, I just might add, if I can just, that Jerry Brown actually clerked for, I think, Justice Tobriner when he got out yeah. of law school. Yeah. So um, he, and in fact, I, you know, I knew him when he got out of, when he uh, was an undergraduate. I even actually knew him in Berkeley. And he talked about his experiences on the court then, and I think that may have shaped uh, some of his uh, philosophy about appointments later on in life. Justice Stewart, do you have thoughts on that? You came from the, uh, the city attorney's office in San Francisco to your, to your posting in the first district. Is is there an, an appreciable transition period when one jumps from, from practice onto uh, an, an appeals court bench without uh, you know, prior judicial experience? Um, I, of course, there there is in in the sense that you're learning how to put a neutral hat on from being an advocate. But in a way, Josh has been a more neutral person. You know, when you work for the government, not as a litigator, which was what I was doing, but as a an advisor to um, someone in a position like the governor, you are in a more neutral place than you would have been, and then I'm sure Josh was as an advocate prior to his government service. And so surely there's a transition in in getting used to the the ethical constraints and everything else, but it is a less dramatic one coming from the position that he's in um, than I think even for me. And I had, I mean, government service has a lot of ethical and limitations and also you know, a public aspect that is not necessarily what you experience in private practice. So it gets you kind of partway there, but there's still, you know, just getting used to the role. And I'm sure there, but, but I don't think that, I mean, even going from the court of appeal to the high court would involve some degree of transition because as Howard said, it's a, it's a, it's not a court of review. It's, it's a court that's deciding sort of bigger issues. So I'm not troubled by that. And if anyone kind of understands what it 
needs to be a judge, it's going to be Josh because he's been vetting them for eight years and thinking about what are the important qualities. And so, yes, there will be a transition. It won't be more difficult, I don't think, than anybody else that is kind of currently serving on the bench or even on the high court. Brian, if I can come in, I think with a comment that may not be directly on point, but I think really goes to your question. It's really important. You know, when you look at the federal judiciary, I think the only justice now on the Supreme Court of the United States who did not serve previously as a judge on the Court of Appeal is Justice Kagan, who came from Solicitor General after being dean of the Harvard Law School. So today on the U.S. Supreme Court, eight of the nine basically came up through the courts. The U.S. Supreme Court that decided Brown versus Board of Education did not have a single justice on it, I believe, that had clerked. That it, that it served as a judge before. It had a governor or a warren, it had a previous senator, Hugo Black, Felix Frankfurter from the Harvard Law School. We can go down the list. And this is a real issue, I think. And I think the governor appreciates this, and that's why he reached out for people who he thought could, could fill his role successfully. That Supreme Courts are different. And it's a great contrast between looking at the process in the federal courts in which promotion from within has become the standard, in which perhaps, and there have been a lot of questions asked about this, about whether it wasn't time to have people on the United States Supreme Court who came from a different background. But it's an important debate. I think the governor understands it, and I think he's handled it in the right way. That, yeah, that's very a very good point. That's interesting. Uh, what, maybe, Justice Gilbert, what, what do you think are some of the important distinctions between courts that do have the, that sort of diverse background of folks coming from different places as opposed to just a complete cohort of judges that have percolated up the, the levels of well, courts? Yeah. The, the court is not just about, the court isn't just about the law. It's about the law, certainly, but how you look at the law and how that law affects people in the society. There's a practical sense. You know, it's not just formulas where you plug in you, you, you plug in a formula and come up with a, with a decision. We're dealing with words and language, which in its very nature is ambiguous. And when you have people from diverse backgrounds who have lived in circumstances that maybe other people haven't lived in, they can interpret the law in a different context, and they can have a greater understanding about the scope of the law and how it affects people of diverse backgrounds and minorities. And I think that's essential to, for a society to function well and for a society's laws and rules to reflect everyone in that society. That doesn't mean they're going to go off on a tangent and just talk about what's better for their group, but they're going to have a deeper understanding about how the law may impact various uh, groups that are not necessarily the majority. And so I think that's really important for, the, for a court that, as Howard pointed out, is a policy court. It's not just a court of error. It may be, a, to some extent, a court of error, but it's also a policy court. And it has to articulate that policy in a way that coheres and makes sense to everyone. And I think, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court during the Warren era certainly did that, in my view. There are controversial decisions all the time, obviously. Not everyone's going to agree with everything, but I think our society made great strides during the Warren Court. And I think that's what Jerry Brown has in mind uh, with the appointments he's made. I also think, again, I hope it's not taking us too off 
but it's such an important discussion. I think one of the reasons that we've had such bitter political battles about U.S. Supreme Court appointments, what it came down to is the value of unpredictability uh, in judicial appointments, that when it, become, when it becomes a test, you know, when the appointments only come from the lower courts, there's actually been some scholarship in terms of, uh, of appointments in the lower, in, in the district and the circuit courts, in the federal system, in which judges try to signal through their opinions the cases they don't take, uh, what they concur in, what they dissent from, signal to constituencies how they rule if they were on the Supreme Court. And that just contributes to this sense that judicial appointments are political. And then, you know, in many ways you get an appointment like Justice Souter, for example, who's not on the federal bench, he was on the state court. And he became unpredictable. People who recommended the appointment were disappointed for their purposes, but I think people gain huge respect for Justice Souter because they thought he was simply come on the court without previous conviction about how he would rule and was simply trying to make the best decisions. And so the unpredictability of people who've not been on the bench and who are appointed in the long run may give greater credibility to justice as an impartial system rather than a political system. And that's that's the point I was trying to make. Yeah, I, and I was just mentioning, you know, I suppose Brennan and Warren could fit into that category yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the point is, when we talk about unpredictability... And Stevens, don't forget Stevens. Oh, Stevens, yeah. of course. Yeah. There are yeah. lots. There are others as well. But, I mean, we could go on. But, uh, un, but when we talk about a lack of predictability or unpredictability, we're talking... What we mean is, I think, or at least I see it, as opinions that cohere. It may be unpredictable, but the opinion coheres. It makes sense. It works. It's not yes. something where a judge is just running amok and coming off on a, on a wild philosophical tangent. It's something right. that is, uh, is written so well, and it reflects a, a different point of view of the law that actually makes sense and works and helps society. I think that well, goes I also without saying. Yeah, and and, and non, non-ideological. I mean, exactly. I think what Howard was alluding to, our, our high court now is at risk of being viewed as entirely a political body because it's yes. been um, – such ideologues have been put on it, and, and then they – serve as ideologues when they're on the uh, lower courts in the hopes of getting appointed down the line. And that just hasn't happened in California, and I would hate to see it happen. And it's a really interesting point Howard makes about not having a prior sort of, you know, written body of, of uh, law that you, opinions that you could be sorted out by. That's an, I hadn't thought of that. But I do think that the governor, in choosing who he's chosen, he has not chosen ideologues. He has not chosen people that he thought, and, and or put it this way, they haven't turned out to be on a spectrum that makes them more about what they think the politics should be than what they think the law should be. They've yeah, been, yeah. And, and I think our high court has, it's long had a, a place as one of the, the better courts maybe the best of, of state supreme courts throughout the country and i hope it will remain that way but thus far i think every person this governor has put on the court has brought their own thought process and they're not predictable in the sense of ideology they're just not and the fact that they're so collegial is also a reflection that it's not 
you know, an ideological court, and I don't think we want one. And I, I, I just don't see Josh as coming with an ideological bent. I agree. I think, I think another thing you'll see in the Supreme Court even today, when there are dissents or concurring opinions, they're not vituperative. Right. They're expressing right. a different point of view, but there is within the very dissent and uh, concurring opinions a sense of collegiality, uh, of respect for a different point of view, but expressing it in a different way. So I think that's very, uh, very important today, particularly in such a diverse, uh, in such a, a con- with all the conflicts we see. This appointment, for the first time in about 30 years, tilts the uh, the balance of the court to, to more Democratic appointees than Republican. But Justice Stewart, it sounds like in, in, in your view, and that more often than not, this court will, will rule close to unanimous, if not unanimous, and there's no, there's not as much sort of ideological predictability and, and sort of clear divisiveness uh, along political lines with this, with this court, yeah? I, I think that's right. I think that, first of all, I don't think the three who were Republican appointees are ideologues any more than the three that the, the governor has appointed thus far. And I think that all of them are, are are pretty thoughtful people. And there have been times in the history of that court where it was more, I, I guess, where I thought it was more predictable how people might come out on certain issues than I think it is now. And I, I believe that this governor's appointments have, I mean, I don't, I think they are Democrats, but I think their views on different issues are, are not the same. They frequently, when they do have differences, they don't line up Democrat, Republican. And again, I think they're just really thoughtful people. And the the only thing I think it would be really lovely to have is, I mean, we do have several of the uh, appointees that were on the court before the governor made his appointments were had criminal background. Um, but at some point, I hope there will be someone on the court that brings a, a sort of public defender point of view as opposed to just prosecutors. But that said, I, I think it's a very diverse thinking court on on almost every axis. So the governor's done a good job. Justice Gilbert, would it be fair to, to look at this court and, and sort of look ahead into the future and, and define it as as uh, Governor Brown's court, how how firm, how deep is the Im- the imprint that he now has on this court, and, and to an extent, do you think that's uh, more so because of the appointment of his his longtime very close advisor? Well, I, I mean, you know, he appointed a court where he wanted to have independent thinkers who had a, a broad philosophical approach to the law and were not ideologues. That's the very thing that uh, Justice Stewart just mentioned. And this court is that kind of court. So it doesn't seem like he's looking to put someone that has his particular uh, stamp on it. He wants to have thoughtful, reflective jurists on the court that reflect the judiciary at its best, not to have a political point of view. And that's exactly what's happened. This court, you know, there are quite a few uh, majority decisions in this court. And just think uh, Justice Stewart may have sat by assignment as well. Um, there's sort of a rotation. Yeah, of course you did. And I think you might have had the same experience I did about how they're open to all kinds of ideas. I mean, I've written memos and they've agreed with me and we've talked and they've disagreed with me on some points. 
and they're looking for the right answer, everyone together. And yeah, that know, was you know, absolutely my experience. Yeah, yeah. They, and I they, just uh, found it. I found it just so refreshing. It's not like you know uh, what? How could you possibly say that? You know, we get right. into it a little right. bit, but I mean, this is the people you want to work with, you want to be with, and I think that's mm-hmm. the core. What Jerry Brown wants, and I think any governor would want would be a court that would be respected by everyone. And the California uh, Supreme Court, throughout most of history, it's gone up and down in its reputation, I understand, but it's always been a leading court in the nation, uh, particularly the trainer court. I mean, that's uh, when I was in law school, that's all they were talking about is, is the trainer court. And it anticipated so many decisions that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, 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 finally decided. And so uh, I think what Jerry Brown was looking for is to have a court that has the prestige and the, uh, the competence and ability of that early court when Trainer and Tobriner and Peters and these, these giants were, were on the court. And I think, yeah. uh, I think this court's heading in, in, in that direction. Yeah, that's what he said, you know, when, when his first, before his first appointment was made, before he appointed uh, Justice Lou, he was quoted in the LA Times as saying, I want to make appointments like Trainer and Tobriner yeah. in terms of the court. And the thing that's so interesting is, you know, he was able to make these appointments in, in these two terms, absent political influence. I mean, it's really remarkable. I don't think he had to concern himself with the politics of appointments, especially in the last four years. But I think through the entire eight years, I mean, other governors have had to be concerned. How would the appointment be looked at politically? I don't think he he had to do that. I think he was so politically secure and so experienced in appointing judges that he could do what governors are supposed to do, which is ask himself who would be the best judge for this court, regardless of the politics of the appointment. And I think it's an important point in how he's governed, especially in, in, the, in, the, in this most previous term. I mean, I think he genuinely has come to these issues with, you know, what's the best thing in policy terms, because he's been free, uh, given where he is and his time in life and what he's accomplished. He's free of what otherwise might be considerations for other governors. And you know what he does? I mean, I happen to know this. I'm not, I don't think I'm giving anything away, but he meets with appointees and discusses philosophy with him. Yes. That's Jerry Brown. He talks about he the Constitution and how you think about this. He's not talking about how you're going to decide cases. He wants to know your view, your, your philosophy of life, your philo- what you've read, what you've, what you've thought about. I mean, you know, he's a very intellectual, thoughtful, reflective person who then uses all that to work in a practical way to make the society better. And that's how he is with with his appoint, uh, appointments. He's talked to Court of Appeal justices. I know this. He's talked to me, and he wants to know, you know, what you think, what your thoughts are in general. He's not looking for a particular answer, but he'll throw questions out, and they're uh, they're challenging and interesting questions. And you find yourself suddenly in this long philosophical discussions. You forget he's the governor. You're just having a great time talking about issues that are important. So that makes him very, very unusual. And I think it's why he's been so successful in his uh, term, his two terms of office. Just to add to that, I have a, a story of, there was a, a case early on, and I've been on the court now for four years, so in the first year, uh, where I reversed the governor on a decision he had made. And with, you know, 
in the back of your head, of course, you think, oh, great, he's going to like me. But later on, after it was a final decision, uh, he made a comment to one of my colleagues who's close to him, and he said, you know, I read that decision of your colleague Stuart, you know, reversing me. And then Tony says, well, yeah. And so the governor said, well, I think she was right. <laughs> and I, what's lovely about this governor is he doesn't, he's not trying to get people who will affirm everything he does or decide in a certain way. He's, he, he I agree with Art and Howard that he, he's looking for thoughtful people who, who will be engaged and care and be thinking about the broader issues that are of importance to the, the state. You know, and he reads, he reads our opinions. I, I wasn't as lucky as you, uh, Teresa. He, uh, <laughs> he read one of my opinions, and he thought it was terrible and told me so. And I told him he didn't read it carefully enough because it was a legislation that he supported, and I was just following the law that he, <laughs> that he helped enact. <laughs> and so we had this whole discussion, and this, he comes up all the time, and he always brings up the, this a very small issue in the case. And I told him how wrong he was in front of a whole group of people. So we had a great, you know, time. So I'm, you're a lot luckier than I am. Well, he, yeah, I don't think he would pick up the phone and call me, which is a plus and a minus. But yeah, <laughs> maybe. We, so we have spoken a bit so far uh, about the one, perhaps major legacy that. that that Josh Groban will have prior to his time on the bench of uh, diversifying the California bench. If we just put a, a slightly finer point on that. Justice Stewart, tell me a bit more about where the California judiciary as a whole has gone from 2010 when Governor Brown took over with Josh Groban as his advisor to, to now. Well, that's a really good question. There's a He, he issued a report in 2017 that uh, reflected the what his appointments were in terms of racial and ethnic diversity and gender and LGBT. And it what it really showed is that in almost every category, I think perhaps everyone, if you, well, first of all, he's brought, he, he's added um, significant numbers of Asian Americans, Latinos and Latinas, you know, African Americans, LGBT people, he's up the number of women. On across the board at every level in the court system in a major way, in a way that's so much bigger that I think if you added the diversity of all three preceding governors together, it would be it would exceed what they did collectively. And it in most instances, if not all, brought them up to the level that they are represented within the bar and beyond. That is to say, from the pool from which he must select judges, which is active practicing lawyers, he has added more people of color and more women to the bench than exist in that pool, that they exceed their numbers in that pool. So I think it is a legacy, and he has done so without, well, I mean, as one of those appointees, let's just cut me out of the picture, but I think he's done so without sacrificing quality of candidates at all. And, and, and he's done that because he had someone, namely Josh, who was willing to get out there in the communities and, and make the effort to do that. And I do think, I, I forget if it was Art or, or Howard who said this, but it does bring pers- different pers- 
perspectives, um, people from different walks of life. And it's not that you can say, well, gee, a gay judge would decide this this way or a black judge would decide it that way. It's it's more complicated than that. We we bring a lot of things with us, but it adds perspective that was missing, you know, for a long time and that didn't, you know, carry across in the trial courts or the courts of appeal. And he's still in the process of it, but it's, it, it is a legacy already and it will be, you know, by the, when he leaves, he will have filled hopefully most of the vacancies that are there and the numbers just speak for themselves. They're, they're amazing. Yeah. You know, if I could just jump in, what I found, and I said this earlier, and uh, I've said it uh, many times uh, since I've worked on vetting candidates for the past eight years, by uh, focusing on diversity, I, I truly have found and believe that he has enhanced the quality of the, of the judiciary. And I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Teresa, but you are a, a prime example, a really brilliant jurist. And throughout the judiciary, we've seen this. But this was the original Jerry Brown. In his first term of office, Tony Klein was his, he had a different, I guess he was called a judicial appointment secretary, but Jerry Brown did much of the same things that Josh did. He advised the governor on a numerous, he was a legal affairs uh, secretary as well, and a, a close advisor to the governor. And I know Tony very well. He's a very close friend of mine. I've known him for years, and the same, that same search for quality and diversity has been Jerry Brown's legacy from the very first time he became governor. And, and I work with Tony in that regard, and he said, I want absolute, I want, competence is the most important. You've got to be good for the job. We're not going to appoint someone just because they come from a minority group. They have to be good. And we found so many people that 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 fit that uh, profile. Yeah, I think it's a lovely historic touch that uh, that Justice Klein is the third member of the Judicial Commission that will, uh, yeah. Yeah. will vote on the confirmation of, of Josh Groban. I, you know, it's, it's kind of a historic circle, and it really is a, a, a nice touch. Okay, we we start to wrap up here. One or two more in terms of the the issues that now will confront likely. Justice Groban and, and the newly comprised court. Mr. Miller, do you have any thoughts on maybe the, the biggest issues coming down the pike for the court? I know there is one that will be argued early next month. I'm not sure if it will be argued before the, the full panel, including Justice Groban, um, involving a measure that Governor Brown had put forward previously, sort of a bite a belt tightening measure in terms of state pensions, I believe. What are some, some big ones to, to watch out for? Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons the diversity of the bench and, and the quality of the court is so important is because, you know, California is going through historic change. The whole country is, but California is also. And so we're going to be dealing with a group of issues that really are going to involve long-established assumptions, practices, new challenges. And the, the quality of this court, and I think I think we can without being presumptuous, say when he's on the court, Justice Groban will simply add to the quality of the, of the deliberations. I mean, the court is now faced with a flurry of employment uh, cases, for example, that, that, are, that have begun and will continue uh, to transform the, the labor picture in California. The, the Dynamex case, for example, was was as important a case as the Supreme Court of California has ever decided. And I think 
everyone asks what difference will this appointment make. I don't think it will make a difference in outcome in the sense that people come to this with pre-existing judgments. I think it will just add to the quality of the deliberation to decide these very new and complex issues that are going to reach the court. Uh, What I see, you know, uh, I think that the court's doing now and will continue to do is wrestling with the new legislation that's come out to uh, mitigate the effect of the draconian laws, uh, the three strikes laws and all the other laws that followed to punish uh, people charged with crimes. And we're going through all this kinds of new discretionary uh, powers given to the judges to rethink some of these um, harsh sentences. And the court's been dealing with that and will continue to do so. And to what extent uh, the court can exercise its jurisdiction and how the uh, Court of Appeals should handle these cases, what cases should be sent back for review, has really been a focus of the court now, and I think that's going to continue in the future as well. So we're, we're, we're still wrestling with some of those cases. And uh, this may not sound like a major issue, but I found that there's a lot of homeowner association cases coming up trying to interpret past law and other cases. And apparently there's just, uh, we're, we're seeing quite a few cases like that. To what extent should the courts get involved? Uh, we've been wrestling with that for a while. I see maybe some clarification in the future for that. More and more people now uh, don't live in homes so much as they live in apartments and they live in complexes like that where they have a homeowners association. And some of the disputes they're getting really be, uh, creating massive concerns about living and about attorney's fees, which are driving some of the some of us nuts. So I think there's going to have to be some clarity there as well. And certainly employment law, you're right, absolutely. Yeah, and, and pension-related issues. And, yeah. But I agree with you, the, 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 one of the biggest areas in which the court has been focused in the past year or two and continue, will continue to be has to do with the effects of various initiatives that scale back punishment and whether they're retroactive and in what way and how do they apply. And uh, it's issued quite a number of decisions in those cases, but it has, there's more to go. Okay, then just last one. Sounds like you are all in agreement that justice, uh, um, that the, the nominee here will accede fairly swiftly and easily to uh, through confirmation to, to the bench, yes? Well, I hope so. I, I would be surprised if he didn't. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, I bet my life on it. I can't imagine. Uh, there's nothing negative about him that I that, and I haven't heard from anyone that I know that everything is so positive. You could heard from this panel, but I mean, I haven't heard anything negative from anyone coming from a, any location. And I know the people on the commission, and they're very thoughtful and reflective. And I, I can't imagine uh, them not wholeheartedly approving this this appointment. Yeah, it's always a dangerous bet, but yeah. I agree with Justice Gilbert. I bet my life on it also. And if it turns out we're wrong, your next uh, podcast will only have one person on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I never bet my night my life on anything that Tony's on I just know. because. Yeah, that's right. I know. Unpredictable. To use a word yeah. we've been using. Yeah, well, right. He if, is. Uh, but I think I know Tony well enough. He may ask a lot of questions. That that I that that's a possibility. But uh, yeah. outside of that, my, my, my vote is he's, he's going he's gonna to sail through. 
Well, if, yep. if only to avoid depleting the, the pool of, of great uh, podcast guests here, not to shed my journalistic objectivity, maybe I should hope that he uh, accedes to the bench as well. Um, but we'll we'll leave it there for now. Thanks very much to all three of my guests. Uh, Justice Gilbert, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, it was a, a joy to be on this program, particularly with uh, my two colleagues who I uh, have such affection and respect for. Thank you. And H- Howard Miller from JAMS and former State Bar President, thank you for uh, joining as well. No, it's been wonderful to be on this with both Justice Gilbert and Justice Stewart. It, it's not just a pleasure, but a great honor. I really appreciate it. And Justice Therese Stewart from the First District Court of Appeal. Thank you as well. Thank you too, Brian. It was a great call. Very fun. And that is our podcast for November 16th, 2018. And one more time, tender very sincere thanks to all three of my guests, Justices Arthur Gilbert and Therese Stewart, and also Mr. Howard Miller. Thanks also goes out to my production staff here, Principal Nick Perez, and thanks to you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Please don't forget a couple of things. First, the one hour of California CLA credit can easily be yours. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. And also, for a while now, we have been available in the various podcast streaming avenues where you tend to listen to these sorts of shows. You can find us on iTunes and the podcast app, just about anywhere you tend to get your podcasts by searching Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal. Finding us there and subscribing, liking us, rating, reviewing us is tremendously helpful as it helps other folks find the podcast. I'm Brian Cardell. Have a great week.